WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you're a first-time listener, and if you are, for the next hour, we'll be taking questions that you may have as it relates to your Christian life, your personal ministry, or your study of the Scripture. All you need to do is pick up the phone and call us. The number locally is 525-1859, 843-525-1859. also have a toll-free number for many of our Internet listeners, and that number is 877 877- the call letters of the station, WAGP 980. Uh, either of those numbers will get you through. People also email us here directly uh, into the studio, and the email address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, though we always give. Uh, preference to live callers. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor. A beautiful morning, and a lot of calls have already come in, so let's get to them. Tina from Savannah, Georgia, emailed her question. She writes, in listening to your teachings and John MacArthur's teachings and the teachings of others, I've gotten confused. Does God work the same centuries past, now, and always? I've heard terms like cessationist and dispensationalist. Can you help me sort this out? Well, that's a great question, Tina. Let me see if I can respond. Uh, God never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible is very clear on that. But the way in which he deals with his people changes over the course of time, depending on the uh, era of time, what we might call the dispensation that God is working in. For instance, probably no one listening to me last week attempted to bring an animal sacrifice to church. Why? Because the the once and for all sacrifice that has been made through Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, it hasn't changed that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And certainly, as the writer of the Hebrews affirms, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But those things just prefigured what Christ would do. Uh, some restrictions in the Old Testament concerning diet. God told the Jewish people, for instance, that uh, the scavengers they could not eat. So, for instance, all the shellfish, like uh, lobster and oysters and clams and shrimps, were forbidden under the Old Testament dietary law. Pork and things like that, animals that split the hoof. And and so um, God has not changed, but the way he's dealing with his people has changed. And so in this era, in the church age, God has declared all meats clean. Why? Well, because some of the things by which God distinguished the Jewish people under the old covenant were external. Uh, The way that God principally distinguishes his people in this time is internal on the inside. And that's what makes the, the difference. 
Now, the term dispensationals, um, the word is actually a biblical word, um, but how is it used today? It's much like other words that are used, like, for instance, people today say they are of uh, the charismatic bent or of charismatic theology. Well, typically when they say that, they mean uh, that they ascribe to certain sign gifts as something that should be normative for Christians today, like speaking in tongues or uh, interpreting tongues or whatever the situation might be. Um, certainly, though, all Christians in the broadest sense are charismatic Christians. Uh, we believe that when you become a Christian, God gives you a specialized ability in which to serve his people. There are 20 such gifts listed in the New Testament. I think at least 16 that are operative for today. Um, but God's given you a spiritual gift. So the term has taken on a different meaning in this age starting around the early part of uh, the 1900s, where we saw a resurgence of uh, what people considered to be the sign gifts. And so today the term charismatic is in reference to people not who have a spiritual gift, namely all Christians, but those who practice a certain kind of spiritual gift. Um, So the term Reformed theology, people say, well, you do believe in Reformed theology. Well, it depends what you mean by Reformed theology. Today, it takes on a very specialized meaning uh, where historically you could argue that people who believed in the infallibility of the Bible, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone, that Scripture alone was the final authority and not the traditions of man or some other outside source, Uh, that Jesus actually physically, not just spiritually, but actually was raised from the dead, is going to come again, literally, physically, bodily, to judge the living and the dead. Those essential basic truths uh, are what characterize Reformed theology. Today, when someone uses the term Reformed theology, they're saying, well, a certain kind of Reformation leader, like of Calvin's bent, Um, and not even of Calvin's bent, beyond Calvin's bent, to what they consider to be a definition of Reformed theology in our day. John Calvin certainly did not believe in the doctrine of a particular atonement. I can easily prove that to anyone, not only from Calvin's institutes, um, but from some of his commentaries. But certainly most people today in the Reformed theology camp do not believe Jesus died for all, but only for a particular number, namely the elect. So terms take on meanings at different times in the history of the church. Basically, historically, uh, what is meant by a dispensationalist, because there are different types, just like there are even today different people in Reformed theology. There are people in Reformed theology who are of the Presbyterian stripe, and then you have, like, say, your Reformed Baptists, and some of their distinctives from Baptist Uh, ecclesiology that they bring into the whole realm. Well, bottom line, a dispensationalist is someone who makes a distinction between Israel and the church. That The church, the body of Christ, is not the new Israel, but we have been grafted in uh, to the root, which is Israel itself. Uh, And so a dispensationalist believes that God has a plan for the Jewish people and that he is going to culminate uh, church history in human history through the Jewish people. And that shouldn't surprise us. The first coming of Jesus Christ was centered around the Jewish people. The second coming of Jesus Christ is centered around the Jewish people. 
And so there is a plan for national Israel. For the most part, most Jews today, those who are descendants of Abraham, racially speaking, are in unbelief, though there are always been a minority, as Paul will describe in, when we come to Romans 9, 10, and 11 in our exposition of those chapters on Sunday mornings here at Community Bible Church. Um, but most Jews are in unbelief. But there's coming a day when the people of Israel as a whole are going to respond to Jesus and they're going to believe that he was indeed and is the promised Messiah that they missed, but they will now embrace. And God is going to use a series of events that will actually usher in the second coming of Christ. So a non-dispensationalist says there's no significance for national Israel. Uh, Some of the things that you read in the Bible, um, the way they skirt around them is they they take, not to get too complicated here, a preterist view of the end times. And they say most of the things that you read about in Matthew 24 the abomination of desolation and the coming of the Antichrist, that's already happened. That's all historical. The only event that's left open is literally the second coming of Christ. Uh, so when Jesus gives an exhortation, those who are in Ju- Judea ought to flee to the mountains. Um, well, you know, that doesn't have any relevance for today. Uh, the Jewish people becoming established as a nation has no relevance in their mind for today. And on and on we could go. Uh, cessationalists are people who believe that there are certain sign gifts that had application for the founding of the church. And so I would agree with John MacArthur. And by the way, he is a dispensationalist. He believes there's a future for Israel. And he does believe that there are certain gifts that have ceased. Now, you know, you could say, well, God can do whatever he wants. And indeed he can. And if he wants someone today to speak in tongues, God can do whatever he wants. But the fact is, is he's not doing it in the same way that he did in the first century. Uh, No evidence whatsoever that God is still giving the gift of tongues. And so there were certain foundational gifts. And again, the gift of tongues is defined in the Bible. There are people obviously today who say they speak in tongues, but they do not do it in the fashion in which it was done in the early church. A real verifiable language. It was a miracle gift. And what they are doing in terms of Uh, The utterances that they speak uh, is no different from what went as far back as the second and third century B.C. of occultic groups that spoke in tongues and uh, that sounds very familiar in what uh, some non-Christian groups do today who have nothing to do with Jesus Christ but speak in tongues in their little groups. The miracle of Pentecost was someone to be able to speak a previously unlearned language. And and it appears that with the completion of the Holy Scripture, that some of those gifts ceased because the need for them ceased as well. And so there were some extra revelational dimensions to certain spiritual gifts. And since the canon of Scripture has been closed and God is not giving new revelation. And you cannot add or subtract to the revelation that he has given. And we're warned in Scripture not to do that. Then today we go to Scripture alone as our final authority. And if uh, we come up with some issue that goes beyond Scripture, then we need to say, well, Scripture doesn't speak on this. This is what I think, but I don't really know. Uh, We do not dogmatize uh, things where the Bible is silent. 
So anyway, I hope that will get you started. And um, if you want to study this in more detail, what you might want to consider is uh, going to uh, my spiritual gifts course, which I've done. And there's about a 150-page notebook that goes with that. And it's section six of that uh, course that you can get through Search the Scriptures uh, deals with uh, the sign gifts in the New Testament. And I deal with healing, miracles, tongues, and interpretation of tongues and go through great detail. And there's like a 10-page handout that accompanies that. So I hope that will get you started. I think we have a live caller waiting, right? We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogan. This is Anthony. How are you doing this morning? Hey, good, Anthony. Thanks for calling. Right. And you too, Rick. How are you? I'm well. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. All right, Pastor. Um, uh, first of all, I hope everybody's excited about the My Hope Project coming up here real soon. Yes. And I hope everybody is praying for these uh, our friends of ours who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. My question is, when the men of God was writing the Bible, and the Bible says that these guys were inspired by God to write the Bible, correct? Yes. Okay. Now, these guys are inspired to write the Bible. Is that the same thing? Would this be the same thing as pastors like yourself who preach the Word of God, who depend on, I guess, God's Holy Spirit to illuminate your eyes to the truth and to preach the truth? Is that the same thing? Is that the same thing? And if it is, why do so many of our ministers come up with different interpretations of the Scripture? Mm. And I'll sit back and listen to you. It's a, it's a great question. Uh, the Bible affirms in many places, there's about 3,000 times in the Bible where it claims to be inspired. And if someone wants to explore this further, I've written a new book. It comes out on Amazon next month. It's entitled How to Prove the Bible is True. Uh, That section, a section of the book is already out in print in a new apologetic series that Answers in Genesis has done. And I wrote a section in that book, How to Prove the Bible is True, uh, without someone having to purchase the whole book. And I don't make any money off these. And and the one that's coming out on Amazon, I wanted to sell it at absolute cost um, so that no one makes any money on it. Uh, the only one who will make money is Amazon, but uh, in terms of the author receiving a royalty, there will be none because I wanted to make it as marketable and as accessible for people so that they can uh, give this booklet to people who are exploring questions like the one Anthony has asked. Uh, the Bible affirms in Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all Scripture is inspired. And the Greek word here is thaos. Theos nutos, two words, theos nutos. It literally means all scripture is God breathed. Just as my voice is my breath coming up from my diaphragm out of my lungs over my larynx and through my vocal cords, vocal cords and, and then that voice, that, that air is uh, formed and articulated by my tongue and my lips and my teeth. Just as you are hearing what is Carl breathed, if I can use that term, Even so, the Bible is the very breath of God, as much as if God had a voice box and lips and teeth. Um, And so when we speak of the fact that all Scripture is God-breathed, God did not breathe into the witnesses or to the writers of the Bible, but what was written 
was actually breathed out of his mouth. Uh, and so you will see in the scripture sometimes the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Um, and so when the scripture speaks of its inspiration in another passage in Second Peter in chapter 1, in verse 20, it says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, or some translations render it one's origination. That's really the thought. It's not interpretation like maybe we use the word today, but uh, and, it, and it's explained in the next verse. For he says, because no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men who were moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. They're carried along by the Holy Spirit. The same word is used in Koine Greek in the first century of a ship that has a sail and the wind carries the, the ship along. And so when we speak of the Bible being inspired too, we're, we're not even saying it's partially inspired. And this is uh, slippery in our day because you will meet some pastors and maybe some well-meaning Christian is trying to find a church and you will ask them, well, do you believe in the inspiration of the scripture? And they'll say, well, of course we do. And you think, oh, good. Praise the Lord. I, f- I found a pastor who believes in the Bible. But again, people use terms, but they mean entirely different things by it. And so a pastor in Hilton Head some years back said on Easter Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. And what he meant by that, not that Jesus literally physically actually came out of the grave, but he argued that Jesus had a spiritual resurrection. Some pastors today, when you ask, well, do you believe in the second coming of Christ? You know, that's one of those uh, non-negotiable fundamentals of the faith. Oh, of course I believe in the second coming of Christ. But when you probe and you uh, dig in a little bit deeper, you discover what they mean by that is that Jesus is coming again in our hearts or in the society as it becomes more and more Christianized and brought under the value system that he espoused, but not that he is literally, actually, physically going to come again to judge the living and the dead. And so when you meet some people who say they believe in the inspiration of the Scripture, sometimes they mean partial inspiration, which argues that just certain parts of the Bible were inspired. Um, Cooperative Baptists. We have two Cooperative Baptist churches on this side of the Broad River. I don't know how many we have over on the Hilton Head Bluffton side. But Cooperative Baptists, one of their distinctives is they deny biblical inerrancy. And so what they basically affirm is partial inspiration, that the whole Bible is not inspired, every single word. Well, if every single word is not inspired, if the Bible is only inspired in spots, then you have to be inspired to spot the spots. And so Cooperative Baptists, for instance, have joined hands with the Lutheran Theological Seminary in this state, in Columbia, which is an apostate seminary. Why would they encourage young people graduating from college, and they would affirm as well that women should be as much pastors and preachers as men should, and so they're egalitarian in their theology. Why would they affirm and encourage someone to go to Lutheran Theological Seminary when they're totally apostate on basic historical issues? Because they don't believe the Bible's fully inspired, and so they'll use terms, but when you begin to flesh them out, you discover that they mean different things by them. But, you know, again, people go to these churches— the pastor's a nice guy, he's friendly and seem like nice people, but you know, you can have blind guides leading the blind. 
um, nor for that matter do we believe in what's called progressive inspiration. Now, it is true that there's a progressive revelation that God gives in the Bible, but um, when the liberals of our day speak of progressive inspiration, they say, well, there are some parts that are more inspired than other parts. But in God's word, it's affirmed that the Old Testament is as much as inspired as the New Testament. Leviticus 3.16 is no less inspired than John 3.16. So God's inspiration, his breathing out through the writers, and he used their personalities and writing styles and so forth, but his moving them along to write the Bible It's not partial, it's not progressive, it's what we call plenary inspiration, that it's full. Uh, Plenary is from a Latin word, planos, that means full. Uh, And um, and, and verba is a Latin word that means word. And so Orthodox Christianity, when you want to nail someone down to see if they represent what historically Christians have affirmed for 2,000 years, they will say that they believe in verbal plenary inspiration. That not just the thoughts are inspired, but the actual words are inspired. And of course, that's what Jesus taught, um, both by illustration and both by direct precept. You know, he said down to the smallest jot and tittle. Uh, A jot is the Hebrew word iota. Uh, uh, That is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, It looks like an apostrophe. A tittle is a mark within a letter. Um, it would be the difference between our letter O and our letter Q. What distinguishes the cursive capital letter O from the cursive capital letter Q? One little slice. That's what um, he meant by jot. Jesus is saying right down to the very smallest marks is the Holy Scripture inspired. He gave a argument for his deity on the tense of the verb when the Sadducees came to him and they gave him this you know remarkable absurd illustration about this woman who has a husband and he dies and she marries someone else and so on and so forth well who's she going to be married to in the resurrection and one he reminds us well we're like angels in the sense that not that we become angels but it's a simile we are like angels and that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage Uh, They don't marry other angels and have little angel babies. Um, And so in that sense, we're like angels. But then he says, haven't you read the scripture? And he said, the scripture does not say, the scripture says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so those theological liberals, the Sadducees, who are distinguished from the Pharisees, the Sadducees were Sadducee because they did not believe in the supernatural things like the doctrine of the resurrection. So Jesus argued for the doctrine of the resurrection uh, from a book of the Bible that they would have affirmed as true. They only accepted the first five books, the Torah, as inspired. He could have easily have gone to the book of Job, or he could have gone to explicit passages like Daniel 12, 1, where it affirms the doctrine of the physical resurrection and so forth. And um, and that there's life beyond the grave and we don't just cease to exist. And But so he goes to the Torah and he says, I am, not I was, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus believed every single word, every single letter, right down to the tense, right down to the smallest stroke was inspired by God. That's what the Bible affirms. So with that said, there is a difference between 
um, God inspiring the word and God illuminating the word, which you brought up, Anthony, and obviously uh, with good reason. Sometimes a Christian will say, well, I had an inspiration. Uh, And by that, they mean um, when I was reading the Bible, God showed me something. Well, you didn't have an inspiration. God is no longer inspiring his word. He has completed the word. The canon of scripture is closed. But he might have taken, but with the Holy Spirit's help and through your study, and he uses both, um, a passage that you were reading and studying, and he gave you insight as to its meaning, or he ministered that truth to your heart, to some circumstance that you're in, and gave you wisdom to some answer you were seeking for, some application that you needed to put into shoe leather in your Christian life. God still does that. Now, it is true that there are times when people come up with different interpretations of the Bible. Even on this last Sunday's sermon, um, I preached a sermon from John 21, and I noted that there was a question that Jesus asked to Peter, do you love me more than these? And I said that there have been basically three popular interpretations that have been mentioned. Do you love me more than these, meaning these boats, this fishing gear, these nets, this profession? And some have taken it to that. Very sloppy interpretation. Uh, And so you will hear sermons that Peter had, you know, forsaken his call. He had uh, gone back to fishing Uh, You'll hear sermons of how Peter was in this deep depression and he had lost objectivity and had gone back to fishing and all this creative, colorful preaching with all psychobabble dribbled through the text that has nothing to do with anything. Because remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And when we compare that interpretation with what is said elsewhere in the Gospels, it is clear that it cannot mean that. But sometimes people do not apply themselves when it comes to studying the Scripture. And we saw, well, some, well, you, you obviously love these, these disciples more than you love me. And we saw, well, that wasn't true. We looked at some other passages from the Gospels that eliminated that possibility. Or could it mean, which is what most sound expositors argue, uh, people who actually study the Bible— Um, lay people and pastors alike, but who are willing to apply themselves. Do you love me more than these disciples love me? That's what you claimed. You said you would give your life for me. You said, though everyone else would forsake you, turn their back on me, that you would follow me. Well, Peter, obviously that's not true. So Jesus meets him where he's at because he wants to reaffirm and really reinstate Peter publicly. He's already dealt with the sin on his soul, but he wants to reinstate him publicly with these other men who are there on that beach there in John chapter 21. So God gives us the command in scripture. Now the command in its original context, and I open every week with this verse of scripture. In the New American Standard, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Be diligent. Now, interestingly, the Greek word that is used, translated here, be diligent, is translated in the King James study. 
And so the King James says, study and show yourself approved. Both are view, in view. There's not a single English word that will translate it. So on the one hand, we're to be diligent, uh, but diligent in what? Diligent in our study of Scripture. Why? So that we not be embarrassed, ashamed, coming up with some interpretation that is just inaccurate. Uh, but we handle accurately, or the King James says, we rightly divide. Uh, it's an actually an arg- ar- ar- agricultural term of someone who, who cuts a straight furrow. Um, we rightly divide the word of truth. So, yes, you know, people do not under, uh, interpret the Bible sometimes correctly because they, they're, they're lazy. And they take a text of Scripture and they say, well, this is what it means. It doesn't mean that at all. If you just read the verses in front of it and behind it or around it, you'd say that's an impossible interpretation. There's only one interpretation to every passage of Scripture. One interpretation, the question you always ask is, what did it first mean? And it's historical, grammatical context. How would someone in the first century or whatever century the text is being written in, in the Old Testament, how would they have understood it? And when I understand what it means to the original audience, then I can make proper application. People today don't want to do that. A lot of pastors don't. And so Saturday night at 11 o'clock, they spend 15 minutes preparing their sermon. And you wonder why the sheep look up and leave hungry or they leave confused. Good question. Let's go to our next caller. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Good morning, Rick. Good morning. Thanks um, for calling. I, ha- I have, uh, actually, it's, it's like a statement and a question. Um, I, I believe based on Scripture, that those who are in power in our country, God has allowed to be in power or has put into power for his own particular purpose and his reason. Um, I'm also thinking in my mind that my hope with Billy Graham might be the last great revival in our country that we'll see. Um, I have no way of knowing this, but it just, it's just a feeling on my part. It just, it just feels like that. Uh, that being said, I, I really... And MacArthur has said this, too. I I really don't see our country getting any better than what it is. Matter of fact, I think think it's going to get worse um, with the people that we have in power. It just seems like the greed and the the evil that persists just seems to be getting worse and worse day by day. And I guess my question is, Pastor Brogy, am I wrong in my thinking, or I I would just like your impression on this? Well, it's it's a fair question. Um, you know, there are some things that we are commanded to do, and one thing that we need to be faithful to do as Christians, and again, as the church grows more and more lukewarm, then that is going that lukewarmness is going to be expressed in many of the disciplines that God calls his people to that are really an overflow of a warm, fervent heart for Christ. But he says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Uh, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, Christ Jesus. And so um, he is affirming here in a century that is similar to our century. 
there is a parallel between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Uh, There were certain Jewish feasts, for instance, that were fulfilled in the first coming. There will be certain Jewish feasts that will be fulfilled in the second coming. It was a time of darkness at the first coming. It's a time of darkness at the second coming. So Paul lived in a miserable age. Uh, It wasn't easy for Christians. And the temptation for us as believers, especially in a republic where we have the opportunity to express our voice, is simply to complain without praying. But the exhortation here is for God's people to pray. Why? That it might be peaceable. Why? That we might have freedom in an unhindered fashion to share the gospel. So there have been um, people in our government who speak of religious freedom, that they're in favor of religious freedom. And what they mean by religious freedom and what other past administrations and leaders in our country have meant by religious freedom are two entirely different things. It's much like with the question we open the program with, people can use the same terminology and mean entirely different things. And so by religious freedom in this time in our history, more and more leaders, Republicans, Democrats, and those in the executive branch mean Well, yes, you're free to do what you do in the four walls of your church, but don't let it go out of there. Uh, That's as far as we want it to go. Um, And so they mean different things by it. God alone knows what is going to happen to our country, but certainly we are on the wrong path. And there are decisions that are being made in every realm that clearly lack the blessing of God Almighty. Uh, There is a moral climate that is becoming increasingly wicked. There is an attitude that more and more is anti-God. We want to leave God out of every facet of our country. And people are looking for opportunities all the time to uh, remove God in any kind of an expression. You know, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the Bible says. Uh, The scripture affirms righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so, you know, we have been in crisis after crisis after crisis. And you don't hear anyone, even with the last government shutdown, say, well, why don't we why don't we pray um, as leaders in our government and ask God Almighty for his hope? You know, they for his help. You know, we they did that at the uh, some of the early meetings in this country, but no longer. And so we're going in the wrong direction. We're either going to go into a dark ages or we'll have a revival where things are dramatically turned around or Jesus is going to come back. There's only one of three possible scenarios. I really believe the stage is being set for the return of Christ, but that doesn't change my responsibility as a Christian. I don't sit on my hands and say, well, Jesus is coming back, so just let the world go to hell and you know, we won't do anything. No, I still have a responsibility to be salt and to be light and to try to impact our culture for the cause of Christ. I still have a responsibility to vote. You know, Christians uh, sometimes don't get out and vote. That's a shame. That's a sin uh, in my view in that we're not participating uh, as citizens and as salt and light as God gives us opportunity. Um, so anyway, 
I could spend a lot more time on that, but let's go to the next caller. All right. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Dr. Brogy. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Yeah, I was calling about Hebrews chapter 6, and I know you probably will read that text for those who don't know what I'm talking about, um, verses 4 through 6. Uh, I know the background is um, the writers writing to the Jewish converts. Um, you know, there is, you know, the debate whether these were, these were genuine born-again believers or those who were just making a profession. Can I get your insight and in verse 6 about if they should fall away? Uh, I'd like to hear what you got to say on that text. Sure. Um, and let me just say to anyone listening, I just re-preached this text uh uh, recently, in the last six weeks, and so anyone can go to uh, CBC of Beaufort dot org, or the other website is CBC uh, Community Bible Church dot us, which is also a, a new uh, name we have for our websites, Community Bible Church dot us. And if you go there, you will see the most recent sermons preached. And you can download those sermons uh, into your phone. Or we also have a new Search the Scriptures app where all the sermons are put up at Search the Scriptures. And you can download those into your phone as they unfold. Um, Contextually, uh, you know, people have applied this passage in a couple of different ways. You have your Arminian Christians. Arminians are those who believe that you can lose your salvation. They do not believe in the eternal security of the believer. And this is a favorite verse for them or a favorite section of Scripture. Uh, One of the problems is that they often divorce the flow of this statement in verses 4 through 6 from the context. And the context clearly of the book affirms the eternal security of the believer. And so in the recent sermon I preached, and I preached it in response to a number of sermons I had finished at the end of Romans 8 on the eternal security of the believer. And we've taken a brief respite before we come to 9, 10, and 11 that represent the national section of the book of Romans. Romans 9 is one of the most controversial chapters in the whole of the Bible. Hebrews 6 would definitely be in the top 10. Uh, Romans 9, of course, dealing with the subject of divine election. But in response to Romans 8, that so explicitly affirms that once a person is genuinely saved, and if they are saved, their life will change and there'll be fruit, that they are eternally secure. Um, And some would say, well, how do you deal with Hebrews 6 in light of that? Which is why I went ahead and preached it. But again, in the context, he's dealing with believers He says, beginning in 512, for by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need again someone to teach you uh, the elementary principles of the oracles of God. So he's speaking about maturation, about Christians who need to be growing. He says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food is for the mature. So again, he's speaking here of maturity. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Messiah, the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So clearly, contextually, he's not speaking to lost people who need to get saved, but to save people who need to grow. So one, I dismiss right off those who say, well, this is clearly, as Arminians would say, speaking to Christians who are saved, but who lost their salvation, who have fallen away, and so it's impossible again to renew them to repentance. I don't think so. 
uh, because, again, in the beginning of that sermon, I go through four passages just in the book of Hebrews that teaches that once we're saved, always saved. So let's give the guy some credit that he's not contradicting himself. And again, if you believe in the inspiration of Scripture by the Spirit of God, then he does it in, in an infallible way without any errors. Now, again, there are liberals in our day and your mainline liberal denominations and even new denominations like Cooperative Baptists that have sprung up that deny the doctrine of biblical infallibility, biblical inerrancy. The Bible does not. It affirms the inerrancy of the Holy Scripture. They argue it because, well, the Bible, they say, was written by sinful humans and some of their sinful uh, tendencies and foibles came through and bled through on the pages of Scripture. No, it did not. God said what he meant. He meant what he said. Um, Then there are those who say, well, this is in reference to an unbeliever who just didn't become a believer. He was enlightened. He tasted. He partook, but he didn't fully partake. He tasted, but he didn't fully experience. Well, again, I go through the words enlightened, tasted, and partakers in that sermon, which, again, you can download it communitybiblechurch.us or the new Search the Scriptures phone app that's good for Droid and Max. Um, Again, uh, for instance, the word tasted is used in this letter itself to say that Jesus tasted death. Identical uh, Greek word. Well, did he just kind of partially experience? No, he fully partook of death. Uh, And similar usages of the word enlightened and partake. So, Clearly, again, contextually, he's arguing of a believer um, who had been given all these wonderful benefits. Remember, he's writing to Hebrew Christians, Jewish believers, and he kind of walks through that. And, And yet he says they have fallen away, and so it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And so he has just illustrated this truth in the Old Testament. Um, he spoke of, in chapters 3 and 4, of believers who came to Kadesh Barnea. Um, and God said, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation. Um, and then he says, take care, brethren, in 3.12, lest there should be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Uh, and so we are to encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today. So the need for fellowship, so the need not to forsake our assembling together, lest any of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If a Christian listening to me is not a part of a Bible-believing local church, they're in sin. Now, you can rationalize and say, well, you know, I can't find a good church. You're in sin. Just call it what God calls it. And two, you are going in the wrong direction because when you forsake God's assembling together, iron is no longer sharpening iron, and sin is going to win out. And so, therefore, he says, let us fear. You know, we say, well, you know, perfect love casts out all fear. Read that verse in its context in 1 John. He's talking about the fact that we don't have to fear God in the sense that, you know, he's going to club us and beat us up because he hates us, because we did something wrong, because all of his anger, 
was satisfied in the cross, God is propitiated. That's a good theological word. It means to satisfy wrath. God gave of himself to save us from himself. His wrath was satisfied. So where to fear? There's a sense that we are still called to fear the Lord because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so he says, let us fear while there remains a promise of entering his rest, lest any of you should come short of it. And so he gives this illustration of these Old Testament believers who come to Kadesh Barnea. And if you remember, uh, God, through Moses, had him send 12 spies into the land. Ten came back. The majority report says it's just like God said it was. But the cities are, you know, are well fortified. And the people, man, they're huge. We're like grasshoppers in their sights. We can't take it. And, of course, Joshua and Caleb said, it's just like God said it was. And, yes, what these men say is true. The cities are big. The people are big. But God promised it, and we need to go take it. So the spies were sent in not to see if they would take it, but how they would take it. And so God had just said, enough's enough. I mean, he put up with sin after sin after sin after sin after sin. And when we don't believe what God clearly promises— We're either saying, God, you can't do it, you're weak, you're impotent, or we're saying, God, you won't do it. You won't do what you said you would do, which in essence is calling God a liar. And that's why in that same chapter, it says, without faith, it's impossible, not hard, but impossible to please God. And so the one who comes to God must believe that he is, that he's God, that he's able to do that which he promised. That God is God, and he can do whatever he wants. So um, God is upset, He, you know, with his people and says to Moses, they're not going in. And Moses comes and says, you're, you're not going in. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because now of your continual habitual unbelief. I mean, you saw God do miracle after miracle after miracle. I mean, you saw you walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. Um, but they refused to believe God. And so the next day, the people say, oh, Moses, we were wrong. We're so sorry. We repent. Uh, We believe God now. And Moses said, no, God said, you can't go. Well, they went anyway, and there was a brutal slaughter. And so this section of Scripture, and I've preached to every verse of Hebrews, and again, you can go to Search the Scriptures app, and you can download it uh, chapter by chapter, but Four, five, three, four, five, and six is a unit of flow and thought that unfolds. Some Christians need a healthy fear of God because they're just toying with God and toying with sin, and they think, well, I can just get right when I think it's time to get right, and then God sometimes says, enough is enough, and you're shelved, and I'm not going to use you anymore. And we fall away, not from our salvation, but from the blessings of God. But listen to that hour-long sermon that I recently preached. Let's go to the next caller, and uh, let's uh, see if we can offer some help. All right, sounds good. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, Good morning, Dr. Berger. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. Uh, I've heard you uh, several times uh, throughout your messages uh, call out Joel Osteen. one morning uh, coming out of the service, I actually joked with a friend. I told him, I said, I, I get the strange impression that uh, Pastor Brogy's not a big fan of Joel Osteen. And he started laughing, and we joked about it. But I said, that was actually kind of tame because a few months ago I ran across on YouTube John MacArthur, 
who had a, and this is probably a couple of years ago, had a scathing uh, uh, indictment on Joel Osteen. He came out and called him a quasi-pantheist, a false religionist, and an agent of Satan. He said that he uh, is using the same message today that Satan tempted Jesus with and that he's tempting us with today. And he followed it up with, and this is my question, and I, John MacArthur, and I quote, he said, I really believe this. I believe that these teachers hate the one true God and are afraid that people will find out what they believe. Now, I've always hoped that at best Joel Osteen is just a wimp who is afraid of confrontation, afraid of hurting people's feelings, and not, and not something more sinister as to someone who is purposefully deceiving people and leading them to hell. My question to you is, what do you think about John MacArthur's assertion that Joel Osteen and other teachers like that hate the one true God and are afraid of being found out? Well, again, you know, he said what he said, and certainly there have been other uh, pastor teachers like John Piper who have come out, you know, against him. I say what I say based on what I read, based on what I understand. And I believe that his ministry is characterized by false teaching. And so I, as a pastor, am called to identify, you know, bad teaching and bad teachers because I'm called to shepherd my sheep and to protect my sheep. And this guy has such a huge following and such huge television presence that, yes, from time to time, I may mention someone by name. Uh, there are some people on occasion that I will mention that I think are Christians, but they uh, have some warped perspectives, but they're still brothers in Christ. But I do not believe that Joel is preaching the true gospel. Whether his motives are sinister, I really don't know. Um, I've not seen anything to indicate that. But again, the devil comes as an angel of light, and he is um, a great deceiver. Uh, I do think Joel is deceived. Now, whether he is purposely deceiving people, I can't read his heart to say that, and I've read nothing or heard nothing by him by which I could make that judgment. Uh, Because again, we're called to judge with righteous judgment, the Bible says. Maybe John MacArthur has done more study on it than I have. And so, you know, he has to give an account for every word that he says, just as I do, too. And I was very cautious for a long time to say anything about him. But I guess because I pastored a non-denominational church several years ago, he sent a complimentary copy of one of his books to me and to non-denominational pastors across the country. And when I read through it, I wish I'd saved it. After I read it, I threw it away, but I wish I'd saved it. I certainly am not going to go out and buy it. Um, But I read things in there that were absolutely heretical. So when he makes statements that, listen, people and pastors, you know, they need to help people on Sunday morning, and they hear so many negative things during the week. So, no, I don't preach about sin. People need to hear some positive things. That's what he says. Well, listen, it's impossible to preach the grace of God apart from preaching about sin. It's absolutely impossible. 
And so he's so diplomatic, so political. When he's interviewed and nailed down, he, he gives such careful answers and so finely worded answers that he really escapes. And he doesn't just come out and say, listen, God says this is evil. Let's call what God calls evil. But he doesn't do that because he doesn't want to lose his following. And again, God alone knows the motive behind that. But, you know, like when he's interviewed on Larry King Live, and if anyone types in listening to me, Joel Olstein, Larry King, uh, just Google those four words, the transcript will pop up. And he's asked directly, specifically, emphatically, do you believe Jesus is the only way to God? And he denies it three times. He doesn't recant that until he gets thousands of letters from people all over the country. Now he's afraid maybe he's going to lose some of his fawn. Well, I didn't mean that. Listen, he said what he meant. He meant what he said. And Larry King wanted to make sure he meant what he said. Do you really mean so? Yeah, well, yeah, you know. And, and so he denies the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as being the only way to salvation. So when the devil comes on TV through one of his teachers or false prophets, they're not going to come on with, you know, uh, uh, a hat with uh, horns coming out the top and holding a pitchfork in their hand. The devil comes as an angel of light. They're going to use similar terminology, but they're going to mean different things by it. And when he just at the end of his sermon says, you know, if you're here today and just invite Jesus into your heart and you'll be born again and it's just, he doesn't give the gospel. Um, so it's sad in the few people that I have met from his church who have come to Community Bible Church. We get people from all over the country and occasionally we get someone from Houston. But I've, I've met three, maybe four. I know at least three, maybe four who have come from the church who went there for long periods of time and none of them were Christians. Not one. They didn't even know what the gospel was. So when I see that pattern from a church or a denomination, I know something's, you know, isn't right. And that's not good. Anyway, I appreciate the question. I don't know if we have time for any more, um, but we're, we're about out of time today. But we're so glad that you could join us uh, for this day for the Bible line. You can always uh, hear the answers that I gave online. They're posted within an hour or two every week at WAGP.net. The questions that are asked are listed in the order they were asked and answered. So if you have a question some week and you know you can't listen to the Bible line, you can email it to us. And when I come here into the studio, Rick has those questions and we try to tick them off one by one. A lot of them we didn't get to today, but Lord willing, there's always another week and another opportunity if Jesus doesn't come back first. If you're looking for a church home and you don't have a place to go, I would invite you this Sunday to Community Bible Church in Bluffton. We're meeting at 2 Coastal Drive behind the BMW dealership on 170. Here in Buford at 638 Paris Island Gateway with services at 915 and 11. You can go to communitybiblechurch.us for more details. God bless you. I hope you have a great day as you live and love Christ. 